Hey, welcome to Bloodhouse, the show where we talk about art house horror movies. I'm your host, Joshua Conkle. And I am your interdimensional BDSM leather bound co host, Sister Silla Adeline. <laughs> welcome to another week of Bloodhouse. Josh, how you doing? I'm good. I got a new car this week. <gasps> bye yeah. bye, Fiat. Bye bye, Fiat. So, you and I, the last time we hung out, you came up to my car because you needed to tell me something. You knocked on the driver's side and I tried to unroll the window and it wouldn't come down. So I just yes. opened the door. Cut to 10 minutes later, I'm flying down the 101 <laughs> at like 10 p.m. And then the window unrolls <laughs> ten, fully 10 minutes later. That's not and, good. And also I hear glass shattering inside the car door as it does no. that. And then it, of course the window is toast. But I was planning on getting a new car anyway, but that was like the the camel that broke the straw that broke the camel's back. I was like, I have to yeah. get a new car. So I, it's like a mom car. It's a Subaru, which literally is the car that my mom has. It's very lesbian coded of you. It's you very know, I'm, gay. I'm from the Pacific Northwest. I I like the outdoors as much as anybody. My mom has had only Subarus for literally thirty years, so I was like, I'm just gonna get a Subaru. Like, why fight it any longer? I'm in my forties. It's time to become a middle aged lesbian, <laughs> and I'm really happy with it. Good. I'm glad. Like, is it like a hatchback? Is it the full like Let's go camping? Oh yeah. Like, yep. It's a Subaru Impreza in uh in the new blue. There's a new blue that they have. That's really nice. So not a lot of oh, cars oh. have that yet. Yeah. So a limited edition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I just got over a really nasty cold. I was me too. On my Everyone ass in for LA is sick. It's crazy. It hit me on my birthday. Yeah. The day before my birthday, I was, like, wrapping presents for people, and I was, like, getting, like, nice and cozy my little, like, elf workshop that is my, like, little studio. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, did I turn the heat on or something? Yeah. Uh, I feel like a wave hitting me. And then I, like, walked downstairs, and I was like, oh, no, I know that feeling. Oh, fuck. Oh, shit. Oh, God. And then I woke up the next day on my birthday feeling like ass, and I was like... Son of a bitch, God fucking. I had like all these things planned. Yeah. And in the days before, I'd gone out and I'd like driven around town and got like a lot of my favorite food from different restaurants to have like on my birthday and the days after, like mm -hmm. nice like appetizers and desserts and like meals. Like, so I would have to be able to stay home and have cozy birthday, but also be able to have good food that I only have like once a year. Um, and I got so, I was sick for an entire week. I lost my voice for three days. God. All of that food spoiled and I had to throw it all out. Oh, that's such a bummer. Very upsetting. Um, but thankfully, the upside was that I was able to, like, catch up on movies. I was mm -hmm. able to get cozy. I like, feel like for the past six months, I've been complaining that, like, all I want to do is, like, have time off to do nothing and lay on the couch and, like, watch movies and just like nap and the fucking monkey's paw finger curled and gave me a <laughs> fucking heinous like full body cold Aww. and shivers and three days of a fever and was like is that enough for you bitch i'm so sorry it's I got fine i watched <laughs> i watched good movies i guess good I got a cold too right after you, but mine wasn't as bad as all that. I do the thing where like I tell myself for like two or three days that it's allergies until mm. I finally can't tell myself that anymore. <laughs> and I just, I always do that. 
<laughs> I don't I'm know still why. coughing a little bit. I like everyone that I know. It's like been in and out of them in like two or three days, and like yeah. they have a headache, some sinus trouble, and like maybe a fever, and they're fine. I had that for the first day, and then by the second day, I had one of the worst sore throats of my life. Like I couldn't even drink orange juice or cranberry juice. Things like that were too acidic. Like. I couldn't talk. I had to be like sign language with my girlfriend and like, yeah, it was bad. I'm still coughing mm. a little bit, but I'm like, I got my voice back. At least I can like eat solid foods again. I'm yeah. not sleeping <laughs> on the couch. I'm like yeah. not sweating my fucking body off all the time. So what did good. you, what did you watch that's good? Um, well, I was able to like, I basically just set up shop with the criterion channel. <laughs> yeah um and got cozy on the couch uh i finally watched josie and the pussycats Mm -hmm. um i watched spice world earlier this year so i had to like round it out and finish it i loved josie and the pussycats it's great it's legitimately great it's legitimately great um I finally watched The Horrible Dr. Hitchcock with Barbara Steele. Uh I rewatched Brief Encounter um, Mm -hmm. one morning on the couch. I finally watched Richard Linklater's Suburbia. Um, Yeah. Just just okay. Um, It's okay. Suburbia is a movie that was really huge in my teen years for me. Yes. But the movie from the 80s that's called Suburbia, I think is better. The Penelope Spheres movie is way better. I agree. Um, I finally watched Hollywood Shuffle. I like. I really like knocked a lot off my list and yeah. like, felt good about it. Um, but then the minute that I didn't feel like ass and I felt like I could like breathe, I put on a mask. I put on like actual clothes and I got myself down to the local AMC and I went and saw Yorgos Lanthimos's new movie Poor Things. Ugh. And then Love two Yorgos. days later, I went again. I can't wait to see this movie. I've seen, I've seen it twice now. <laughs> you said it's your favorite of the year. It's my favorite of the year. So, yeah, I I had seen something else right before I got sick that I was like, favorite of the year. I can't believe something beat out Ennis Main and Scorsese. Which Holy I'm going to guess is what I'm going to talk about, but go on. Quite possibly. Uh, and then as soon as I saw Poor Things, I was like, no, it's Poor Things. It's so Yorgos has good. never steered me wrong. I haven't he, seen it yet. And I'm dying to, but I love every Yorgos Lanthimos movie I've ever seen. So my partner loves the favorite. Also loved um, the TV show that's connected to the favorite, the great mm-hmm. um, and loves what she's seen of Yorgos was so excited to see it. loved poor things so much that like we then went to go see it like two or three days later. And in between that, I showed her Killing of a Sacred Deer, which we obviously talked about on this show. Yeah, very. She had never on. seen before, and she loved it. Love it. She, I love that movie. She was like laughing every two minutes yeah. at Killing of a Sacred Deer, as if it was like a stoner comedy from the nineties. And I was <laughs> like, "That's the right response." It is, and also, I mean, the lobster is so funny too. I, I mean, yeah, I just Poor love things Yorgos. is hilarious. Poor yeah. Things is hilarious. It's beautiful. It's moving. It's got some of the best performances of the year. And it like it reminds me so much of Bunuel and Fassbender mm. and Ken Russell in like all the best ways. Um, it's playing with a Frankenstein kind of narrative, but yeah. it's doing it through um 
a kind of like picaresque gothic novel form. Yeah. It reminds me of Belle de Jour, of Tristana, of Verdiana, like those great Bunuel movies from the 60s. Um, and it has Hannah Shagula from The Bitter Tears of Petrovan Kant really? and The Marriage of Maria Braun. Whoa. As one of the single most important characters in the movie who has a lot of screen time. And like she's incredible. She gets one of the biggest laughs of the whole movie. Like, yeah, it's so exciting to see like Fassbender actors in this alongside fucking Mark Ruffalo and Emma Stone and like Jared Carmichael and Rami Yusuf yeah. and shit. Willem Dafoe is under like so much prosthetic um, to be uh, the kind of Dr. Frankenstein of the narrative. And he's incredible. Um your boy from Sanctuary and Girls, um Chris, Chris Abbott, Abbott is Ugh, in it. Heaven. In an incredible performance. Um it's really, really, really good. The costumes are lush and incredible and wild. The cinematography if you if you've seen the favorite, the cinematography is very close okay. to what um Yorgos and Robbie Ryan were doing in that with a lot of like crazy fish eyes and stuff yeah. like that it's beautiful it was the first feature to be shot on a new kodak ectachrome 35 millimeter and it looks so close to like technicolor it's really really impressive oh my god i can't Um, wait i hear choreography is great it's amazing i hear whisperings of oscars about emma stone yeah emma stone and mark ruffalo are really the two like performance standouts that everyone is like gobsmacked by and and the right i will also say because it's you know got some like prestige to it and it's coming out in you know oscar window which is also holiday season if you are going home and you're spending time with family and someone says let's go to the theater and see poor things don't go with your mom don't go with your family okay there's a lot of sex oh okay it really feels like Yorgo saw all of those tweets of people complaining that they don't like to see sex in movies anymore. Oh, and he said, up, hold yeah. my beer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hold my Greek beer. Um, it's incredible. I I, I loved it so much. I can't recommend it highly enough. I definitely have to see that before the end of the year. But I was going to guess. So was your number one movie until Poor, Poor, Poor Things may december yes it was yes. oh yes it was i i love may december so much that's what i wanted to talk about because i went to an early screening of it actually so i got to see it mm. in the theater before it hit netflix i loved it so much for me todd haynes is kind of hit or miss i mostly hit but there have been a couple of misses for me i've not experienced a miss by todd haynes what was the kids movie that he made? Wonderstruck. I haven't seen Wonderstruck. Wonderstruck was the only miss for me. I was like, I this haven't is seen not it. For me. I I want to give it a shot. I've been told that it's, I'm a big fan of Martin Scorsese's Hugo, and I've been told by people that if you like Hugo, you'll like Wonderstruck. I like Hugo, but don't like Wonderstruck. And Interesting. It, and to me, it felt like, oh, this is like a worse Hugo. You know, okay. like, um. So I loved Todd Haynes except for that movie. I loved this so much. It I felt loved like an, it. 
it just felt so funny and weird. And there's been a lot of interesting conversations around it on the internet Mm -hmm. because Todd Haynes came out and said that he didn't think it was camp. And so, and it's nominated for comedy, which comedy, which seems to perplex people at the golden globes, which is its own fucking weird can of worms. Yeah. But I just, I actually thought it was really funny and having seen it in a theater, there was a lot of laughter and I thought it was funny. And I, I, I wanted to get your take on this because I can see why he would say that he doesn't think it's camp. But my take is that like, this is doing old school melodrama like Douglas Sirk or whatever. Yes. And I feel like we don't, most people don't have that in their vocabulary. Yeah. Something to reach to. So the closest thing is to say camp, which it isn't technically, but like, it's definitely funny on purpose. You it know? has moments of funny on purpose. There's yeah. Corey Michael Smith is incredible in it. He's one of my favorite actors. Yeah. Uh, he has a few moments that are like cringe funny that feel like he feels like he's stepping out of the curse or like Nathan for you. Yeah. In some, some scenes that he's in. Um, and there's been much discussed around a hot dog related scene at the God, beginning of the movie. What a great which, scene, which does have like a tension relieving laugh to it. I personally didn't laugh during May, December. I saw it in theaters. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't find it very funny. The parts of it that elicited a laugh for me were out of like disbelief and tension. Okay. Because there's like a point where like one person is like, I don't want to talk about this. I like, that's that was a scandal 20 years ago. I don't want to hear anything about that. And then immediately goes, but I do have this laminated newspaper. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then i'm like oh you mob like there's a lot of those like oh these fucking people i know these fucking people i don't there's think it's in, i don't think it's a comedy per se yeah but i do I think, think there are moments that are intentionally funny like the hot dog moment yeah. i think all the stuff about natalie portman's tv show which is called nora's arc where you yeah. only get little clues about it where someone's like i loved you on nora's arc i saw that episode where you had to do surgery on an elephant so you get like little hints about the terrible tv show she's on so there are things like that that i think are genuinely meant to be funny and then come on their lisp like in my house for two weeks we've been saying are you scared <laughs> or <Yeah>. precisely <laughs> <laughs> we've we've been doing the the gray thelith a little bit um yeah. but i i don't find it in the context of i find it funny outside of the context of the movie in the movie while watching the movie i didn't find the list funny i found the list terrifying i found it um, funny even in the context of the movie but there are there are moments that this movie that are just like heart shattering and, that's and deeply thing. felt so it's I, not like those are in conflict for me but yeah mm-hmm. for me tonally this movie again like it's high key melodrama and yeah. we don't like in 2023 2024 america don't have a like visual lexicon for that anymore other than parodies of that right which is a shame more people should be watching michael curtis movies more totally. people should be watching douglas Sirk movies but like the thing that this is like the closest to which is a lot of todd haynes's career is fassbender like hmm the tone of this reminded me a lot of like Chinese roulette yeah, um, yeah, with yeah. Margaret Carsonson or um, the marriage of Maria Braun or um, he's uh, or bitter tears, but from Kent, he does such a great job of pairing together characters that are rep fucking hensible yeah. and who do horrible things to one another. 
and just like sicking them on each other. And he's uh, willing to let it be as dark as it needs to be. And he's willing to let like the shock of the darkness, like allow like tense bubbles of comedy to pop up. Um, Martha is a great example of that. There's a sunburn scene that is one of the most like, fucking reprehensible vile things you'll ever see in a movie but like gets a shock laugh out of you at points yeah. um that's like what may december feels like to me may december is also like brilliantly scripted by sammy birch it's re- like the script is excellent he uh she and todd like really thread the needle on the tonal balance of the movie and on like the elliptical nature of the characters and of the story yeah um Speaking of Oscar buzz, though, Charles Melton's performance is wonderful. Insane. Just as a Riverdale guy. He's Reggie yeah. from Riverdale. Like, who knew? But he's extraordinary in this. My favorite thing is there's been a lot of, like, promo stuff lately of, like, him and Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore, like, doing interviews about it. And at one of them, an interview asked the, the group of them if Natalie and Julianne had seen any of Charles's work before this movie and if they'd specifically watched Riverdale, to which you then get a very slow Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore going, no, I'm, we're sorry, yeah. but no. <laughs> sorry, Riverdale is an unwatchable show. <laughs> yeah, no way in I hell can't. Julianne Moore is watching Riverdale. Charles Melton's incredible, though. And yeah, incredible. I've had, I've heard from friends that are like, it's insane that the prospect that the first person that todd haynes might get someone to direct someone to an oscar is a man and not julianne moore it is kind of wild i saw him say that he like like went and did everything he could to like gain a bunch of weight for it saying that like all he did was like todd wrote him a list of movies for reference and like he's like i just went out and got a burrito every day I ate a burrito and I watched a Douglas Sirk movie and I watched a Bergman movie and I watched a Fassbender movie. And that's all I did. I watched Wong Kar Wai movies. And I'm like, that's the fucking life, dude. Yeah. If that gets you an Oscar, fuck yeah. Yeah. It was so heartbreaking. It's so good. I've been trying to get my mom to watch it because it's on Netflix. (laughs) Well, I'll tell your mom to watch it when I'm in Carmel taking her hot yoga class in like two Too bad she's coming here in a week. For well, Christmas. I'm so, I'm so happy for you that that's happening. Yeah. But I'm she'll be here around Christmas. Me. If if you're gonna be in Indiana post Christmas, like December 26th, I will be. be I get there the 26th. Oh, okay. Then the, the then she'll be back by that point. She okay, leaves great. on the 25th. All right, Patty, so. I'm coming for your hot yoga <laughs> class. <laughs> you two can discuss May December in full together. Yeah, I'm gonna quiz her to make sure she watched it when I get there. <laughs> I can I just really quickly, what yeah. did you think of the score in May? I December? loved it. I loved it. I loved the like melodramatic stings. Like, I'm afraid we don't have any hot dogs. Dun, dun, dun. You know, like the score is so good. I. I think it's brilliant. I think more film, modern films should have that kind of a score. It's like quoting and is mostly lifted from Michelle Legrand's score for the 1971-1972 movie The Go-Between by Joseph Losey. Oh, that makes sense. It does feel like Legrand. Yeah, it felt like very old school while I was watching it. I was like, what composer did this? This is crazy. And then the, the end credits come up and it says score from the movie the go-between by michelle legrand and i was like oh (laughs) that's why that makes a lot of sense that's so cool yeah ivory and i both loved it so much that we saw that 
Netflix was sending out like for your consideration, like marketing campaigns to critics and stuff that included like a book of like the screenplay and a book that, that accompanies the Todd Haynes exhibit at the museum of moving image in New York. And like a recipe book for Gracie, uh, pineapple upside down cake <laughs> and like a shirt that says a film by Todd Haynes or like directed by Todd Haynes. In yeah. the font. And we wanted one so bad that I went on eBay and I bought <laughs> someone's <laughs> like fyc kit and it just got here the other day and like we also got poor things merch at the screening we went to so all week we've been walking around and like matching poor things in may december shirts oh my gosh that's amazing did you see the screen grab of the may december script the hot dog moment because it's yes. like it's literally like she opens the refrigerator and says i'm afraid there won't be any hot dogs and Wait, then, i don't think we have enough hot dogs and then uh, yeah. it's like hard cut to uh charles uh, melton on the grill and this like the slug like, line says there are so 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 many so hot many dogs, hot dogs. So i now good. have this script in 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 my <laughs> home and then as soon as we got that i opened it up to like page three and pulled up to that it's so good it's brilliant i love well movie. speaking of so good we're here to talk about a horror an art house horror 101 that both of us love dearly and that movie is of course Written and directed by Clive Barker from 1987, Hellraiser. Um, I don't remember when I first saw this movie. I'm, you know, a child of the 80s video store who always loved horror movies. So I just Mm -hmm. don't, I don't know a time in my life when this wasn't in my periphery. How about you? That's amazing. I vividly remember the first time I saw Hellraiser because it wasn't until I was in college. Hmm. I, it was one that I had heard about my entire life. And of course, like in the like visual language of 80s horror, you have like very specific killers and yeah. the looks of them. And yeah. Pinhead and um, the Laminate Configuration Cube are very iconic up there with Jason and Freddy and Michael Myers. And so yeah. I always like lumped it in with those but it never like played on TV like those did. So I watched those as like a 14 year old or whatever. Uh, And then I, you know, when I was getting more into movies and stuff like that, I would see like Hellraiser at Blockbuster and the library and stuff. And I'd be like, Oh, I get it. It's just one of those, but it's like, he's got pins in his face or something, whatever. Yeah. Um, but I had a stepfather when I was in high school and around the time that I left for college who um, was in like a new wave band in the eighties that didn't go very far, but they opened for flock of seagulls and he was like, yeah, I had a signed flock of seagulls LP from him. Um, And like, you know, he like painted a little bit and he was obsessed with Salvador Dali and like, Mm -hmm surrealism had a lot of like art books in the house and stuff like that which was great um not a great dude kind of a piece of shit yeah uh did not treat my mom well did not treat me well however his favorite movies ever were like the dark knight and highlander and that's like all he would ever want to watch he would sleep through anything else yikes but he like did his own like in the 80s and 90s did his own paintings and a lot of them were like very dully inspired 
but had a lot of like meat hooks and chains in them and a lot of like nude men. And I was like, it's like some gay BDSM. Yeah, what's this about? What the fuck? (laughs) Um, And I was back home from college around Halloween for like a weekend. Uh, And my mom was like, oh, you know, after dinner, let's put on a horror movie. And I was like, I'm not going to be the one to choose a horror movie to put on with my mother. I'm not going to put on The Brood or something like that. I I don't want to catch the flack of whatever response is going to be. And my stepdad was flipping through Netflix and he was like, oh, Hellraiser's on here. I love Hellraiser. You have to watch Hellraiser. And I was like, okay. So I watched Hellraiser for the first time at like 18 or 19 with my mother and my stepfather. Uh, (laughs) Very weird experience. Yeah. Uh, It made a big impact on me. I liked it a whole hell of a lot more than I expected to, but it was also like not something I was super comfy (laughs) watching uh, in that context. And that might have some uh, impact on why I have a stronger personal connection to um, the sequel Hellbound Mm -hmm. and why I tend to watch that one more and have have a deeper affinity for that. But because it's kind of the one that like feels more like mine Mm -hmm. rather than the one that's Thomas's. But like, fuck me watching that at like 19 with no experience yeah with your mother like sipping wine on the other end of the couch is weird yeah well i will say even though i i associate this with all those other 80s horror movies the same way that you do i didn't like this one as much as those other movies when i was a kid Mm because my taste wasn't good right so like i preferred the jason summer camp movies i think i did like this but it wasn't now that I look back, it wasn't until I was, you know, an adult and I rewatched it when I was like, oh, this is a lot better than I took it for as like an eight-year-old, obviously. Yeah. And I do get why you prefer the second one more. Um, I do really like the second one. It feels to me, I know that these aren't movies that you that you specific specifically don't really like, but it feels to me like Alien and Aliens. Mm-hmm. Alien is like a very quiet, sophisticated movie that's kind of slow moving and aliens is a really fucking good super fast action horror movie so Mm. aliens is kind of more fun to watch in some ways than alien and it kind of feels the same with the first two hellraiser movies to me as well because the first movie is very contained you know it's Mm -hmm. like a very simple story and the if I remember the sequel, you spend more time in hell, which is crazy. And yeah, you know, there's a lot more gore and Julia's back as like a skin person, which is so fabulous. Is and, incredible. Yeah. Julia's my favorite. We'll get into, but Julia's my favorite character in the Absolutely. canon. Of course. Of course. Um, You're only human. <laughs> for so long. Yeah. For um, now. For now. I... Per- I love Hellbound because it feels like the most surreal big budget horror movie that was yeah. going to be made at, at all in the 80s. Like it feels yeah. like it shouldn't exist. It does not follow any normal like screenplay logic. It like feels like a grungy little art film. It feels like a Ken Russell movie. Yeah. It feels like a surrealist painting brought to life with like 
noodles and hooks and demons inside of it. It's yeah, very bizarre, I guess and I love what it. I meant is that it feels like more maximalist than the first movie. That's fair. That's the like first a kind of kind of like a small chamber gothic yeah. drama. It could almost be a play or something. Almost. I would love to see a play of Hellraiser. Oh my it god. It would be so good. Um, synopsis wise, in case you haven't seen this, and I would be shocked if anyone listening to our show hadn't seen this movie. This is about oh god, where do I start? So <laughs> this is about a man named Larry and his second wife Julia who move back into his childhood home and Larry's younger brother, Frank, who's like a hedonist and an occultist has been hiding out there recently. And um, the younger brother, Frank uh, had obtained this puzzle box, which when he solved it, the Cenobites appeared, which are demons that are like on the fringes of pain and pleasure, sadomasochistic devils and or angels that take Frank away. And when Larry and Julia move back into the house, Larry accidentally cuts his hand. He bleeds on the attic floor, which starts a process of Frank coming back. Now, what Larry doesn't know is that Julia and his little brother, Frank, once had an affair in the past and are obsessed with each other. So Julia is present for Frank's return and sort of Little Shop of Horror style starts helping him come back bit by bit by giving him blood. So she's going out and like, tricking these men to come home and sleep with her. And then she's feeding them to Frank. So he gets more and more skin and sinew and bone and stuff. And it's very eating Raul. It's very, yeah. Yeah. Um, Also, Larry has a young daughter named uh, Kirsty, who is maybe like a university student or early twenties who lives in an apartment nearby. And so he's connecting with her. And so she's in the mix and I I don't know, I'm, I'm losing my train of thought. Do you have anything to, amend or change or yeah actually lawrence who plays kirsty kind of develops into our final girl of the franchise as she has to like she gets like institutionalized for a bit yeah and, like has to become kind of our heroine um against frank essentially frank and julia the thing that i was really taken with when i finally first saw hellraiser all those years ago and something that I still find refreshing when I watch, you know, David Bruckner's um, revival of the Hellraiser franchise from a few years ago with Jamie Clayton and stuff like that, um, is that I always had a mental image of these movies with the Cenobites as being the villains of the piece. Yeah, as they're being not the monsters, as being the villain, like, and they're really not. They're entirely neutral forces yeah um that just and they're barely in this movie to be honest they're barely in this movie you get like snippets of them uh later on that like there's a great scene where like a kind of wall falls away and the like denizens of hell start coming out which is amazing um but you barely get them it's more about the sinewy dripping frank um, and his sinister plans on Kirsty and on the father, um, and more about their villainy and more about um, the lengths that hedonism like destroys a human being. Yeah, um, it's a very glamorous I, movie. I love horror movies that are about posh forty somethings, you know, and like yeah. 
Julia is very chic. She's wearing her 80s you know, like business women's suits with the giant shoulder pads and the the eyeshadow. She looks like a Nagel print kind of. Oh um, yeah. It's a beautiful house. So it's all like very chic and stylish on top of the you know sort of leather SM sort of aesthetic that we have in the horror aspect. So highly stylized it's clive barker's first movie as a director he says it was a great experience people were very patient with him because he didn't know about lenses and things like this um just like super stylized which really sets it apart from a lot of the other 80s movies i mean i would say that nightmare on elm street is also surrealist but it's not as it's not quite as sophisticated as this at any point no it's not and like it's a lot of that like first time like doesn't know the rules kind of filmmaking that Clive Barker brings to this that is so impactful. I mean, we get a lot of like overblown light. We get a lot of like cool blue palettes. Yeah. And a lot of like choices that don't feel in a way logical or that, you know, you'd have 17 studio execs over your shoulder being like, now he doesn't have flesh yet. Should he be wearing a blazer? You're like, yeah. no, he looks cool in the blazer when he's all <laughs> drippy blood. Fuck off. Well, he did get some pushback from New World executives at various points, but we could talk about that later. But yes, you're right. It, 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 I think this is a successful movie. I mean, I think he did a great job. And sometimes we can forget that Clive Barker is a very talented visual artist in his mm-hmm. own right. You know, he's a painter. So, and you can feel that in his prose work as well. Like, he just has such a cinematic eye. So, he's kind of a natural for this, is my point, I guess. It's kind of a shame and always continues to surprise me that he only directed all of three features. Yeah. And I think the bad, like, almost every single one of his films has a like contentious, like, director's cut versus other like Nightbreed, of course was a very big battle yeah and we only recently got the director's cut back even lord of illusions from 95 had a similar situation so i can kind of see why someone who you know especially who works as a writer and like right visual artist would buck up against um the kind of behemoth like multi-faceted aspect of filmmaking the like amount of people involved in cooks in the kitchen you have to answer to i can see how that may have dissuaded him away from that but it's a real shame because like there's no other movie like the first hellraiser in spite of the pushback from new world and the producers it feels like this is purely a clive barker joint you know what i mean i feel his soul in this it doesn't feel like too interrupted there's a couple of things that they changed so he wanted to use music by this like sort of experimental i guess industrial this band coil um and new world insisted that he replace it with uh, a traditional score which i have to say i think is the right choice i think the score is really good here and feels classy and i i mean i'm sure the coil stuff is good too and i know that it has been released as a record have you listened to, to it no i haven't it's great i outside of even the hellraiser lore am a fan of coil yeah uh the film critic and author stephen thrower was a member of coil at oh, really? the time that they were composing that they were hired to compose the music for hellraiser which is wild as hell um i really like the coil score 
Um, do the question of whether or not it works on the movie, I don't know. Well, I would love it. to yeah. see a version of the movie recut to it. Um, I don't know if that's something someone online has done or not. If you have, yeah, please if you're send listening, me a link. And you, you can do that. Please do. Um, but I would, I would love. I feel like it would be entirely too oppressive, though. For me too. A, like, I feel like it, release audience yeah. in '87. So the score was by Christopher Young, who also did A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, and the Toby Hooper film Invaders from Mars. So not great movies. Um, but gay but, movies. <laughs> yeah, and also significant in the 80s in the milieu of horror, I guess. Yeah, so a safe choice from yeah. um, New Line. Uh, not new, and the, new world. The other movie. thing they did was they decided that it should be American, even though it's British. And so basically yeah. everyone in the movie is dubbed over with an American accent, which is wild because first of all, so the actor who plays Larry and the actress who plays Kirstie are both American. Julia is British and allowed to keep her British accent, but everyone else they plow over with american accents including kirstie's boyfriend and all the party guests who for some reason are like uh i you know they have like thick new york accents all of a sudden for no reason it's just it's very it's a choice it's wild it's a strong choice i like that julia is the only one who's allowed to keep a british accent because she's the like most overt villain yeah british people are evil (laughs) british people are evil that's why they make movies like hellraiser they're trying to fucking sap it and purify our great american soil (laughs) other than that there were some shots that they had to cut out to keep it from getting an x rating and letting it have an r rating instead um yeah Uh, it's the movie's a miracle in so many ways because like from the perspective of a horror author turning into a horror filmmaker directing his first movie that's tricky territory and does not always go well yeah stephen king is a very good example of why clive barker is incredible yes stephen <laughs> maximum King's like overdrive the worst the director time. yeah oy vey He's that movie not great yeah. it's genuinely a miracle that barker was able to pull this off it ge- reminds me a lot of and this is a weird and almost feels like it's too high of an acclaim. It reminds me of Citizen Kane in the way that Orson Welles just like was a theater director and mm-hmm. uh, was a radio personality and radio director and then got carte blanche to just make a movie, had yeah. no idea what he was doing, had never been on a film set, had no idea like about cameras or lenses or anything and just fucking went off and made whatever he was going to make. And guess what? It's fucking phenomenal. In the same way that Barker didn't follow the rules, he didn't like New World didn't make him like sit like audit some like film school classes. Yeah. Um and it feels unique. It feels like he understands cinematic language. He under like he clearly is a fan of horror films and is a cinephile enough to understand um putting together but he also had a really strong team around him um but also like new world wasn't very big yeah at the point of this they would go on to produce the elvira movie or release the elvira movie was produced by nbc and universal around the same year 
this really put New World on the map. They had just been previously a Roger Corman owned um, distribution company of like tiny exploitation and horror movies. Um, but then also, if you think about the 80s climate of slasher movies, yeah, Hellraiser shouldn't have broken out the way it did. No, it's really, really it's impressive the quality. That it did. It's the quality, and it's, it's sort of undeniable in a way. Yeah, it's not the kind of thing that you can like write down on a like piece of paper or sell to a like magazine and say it's great because of this. Yeah, you simply have to watch the movie. It's like somebody um, who has an idiosyncratic vision that you just couldn't write down on a piece of paper and understand. You have to see it. Some critics did say that it has like kind of a goofy third act, which I think is true. I actually, mm-hmm. I quite like it and I don't mind it, but it does sort of take away from like the sophistication of the movie a little bit. That's fair. And, and I mean that by like, it just, it just gets like a bit goopy and gory, which is fine in and of itself. But then there's all these other things. Like there's a runner where, there's this been there's this there's been this unhoused man that's been following Kirsty around and we don't quite know who he is. And he um at the end he like takes the box away and then turns into a bone bat and flies away. I had to Google it and I've seen this movie many times. I was like, who is that guy? What is that? And apparently it's like in the cosmology of Clive Barker's work he's called an eremite who are like the demon guardians of the puzzle box but it's like you you don't know that watching the movie if you're yeah. just a casual viewer of this movie you're like it's just like what <laughs> yeah so there's like weird hiccups like that a little bit where it's mm-hmm. like oh i don't know if you quite landed that um but that's okay that's uh, still the idiosyncrasies that come with like a first time director's first movie yeah. Yeah. that I love looking at like Boots Riley's I, um, Sorry, Sorry to Bother, to bother you. you. God, I love or, that like, movie Alex Cox's so Repo Man. Like yeah. there's these little idiosyncrasies in those that like you have like whole non sequitur like, sequitur scenes and stuff like that that like don't, wouldn't work in anything else but because you're giving it the grace um, and because it has all of these other qualities it you you allow it to work for you, even though that on paper it shouldn't work in other contexts. Um, it's also worth discussing the BDSM of it all. Yes. This is a, became a very large mainstream hit, spawned a long-running franchise that is still going to this day and is now owned by Disney. Yeah, it's so weird. And uh, it is maybe the single most mainstream, especially by 1987 depiction of um, kink. Yeah. I mean, the sort of the question of the movie or the, the theme is that pleasure and pain are two sides of the same coin, right? Like Mm -hmm. the Cenobites say like some people call us demons. Some people call us angels and Frank has solved this puzzle box. So he's whisked away to this other dimension where he is stretched to the limits of his physical pain, which is also pleasurable in some way. So that's the theme that we're exploring. I love it as an aesthetic and as a tone for a movie. I don't necessarily feel that for myself. Like I've never quite understood BDSM, but I support it. (laughs) Yeah. I listen. I am. I am not a pain fan, uh, yeah. in in the least. But I am a big 
supporter of the kink community and yeah. of BDSM and all that stuff. And I also I love leather. I love a leather aesthetic. I, I mean, am very love much leather. <laughs> Sorry, I always hear the fucking Tobias Fuge line on like <laughs> something that says daddy likes leather. Yeah. Um, a discipline like- daddy. <laughs> <laughs> gonna spank your behind um (laughs) but like this this is like this is not like oh like whips and chains we're not having like fucking peter fonda like look turn around to the camera and go what have i gotten myself into now like you know any Mm. comedy from the 70s when you have like oh the only representation of something like that is like a dominatrix and some kind of like sex worker who like and that's always shown as like some horrifying aberrant behavior. Yeah. It's used as like um a shorthand for horror um in this, but it is treated with the respect of someone that deals with that community that is familiar with yeah. that community and Clive Barker being a queer man. It's super um, queer, like, I was gonna say. It's Doug Bradley and Pinhead are presented as like hot <laughs> like yeah yeah and so a lot of the cenobites the it. woman is hot too i mean mm-hmm. um and it's inherently queer at a time that was like extremely homophobic and i was about to say that there's nothing else like this but i just remembered from the composer F- freddy's dead or, or yeah. sorry friday uh friday nightmare on elm street friday uh, nightmare on elm street freddy's too revenge. freddy's revenge because I happened to work with Rachel Talalay on an episode of television who I produced that movie. She's an incredible director. She directed Tank Girl and she won a Director's Guild Award for our episode of The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Hell yeah. Um, really fascinating woman. So I asked her, did you know, like, be honest, that what you were making with F- Nightmare on Elm Street 2 was super queer. And she said, truly, I promise you, none of us understood. What we thought we were doing was like an SM leather kind of Judas Priest version of A Nightmare on Elm Street, which, of course, Judas Priest is a gay band. But besides that point, like, <laughs> sh- but it's that. It's like, it's sort of code for qu- queerness in a weird way. Not to take yeah. anything away from the kink community, but at this time it it's i mean short shorthand for circa F-slayer. 2023 the kink community is like a, the venn diagram between that and the queer community is essentially a circle like <laughs> yeah. it's sort of the like a rectangle is a square but a square is not a rectangle kind of thing like yeah th- they very much go hand in hand i don't think any member of the kink community would be offended to be lumped in with the queer community like right. and vice versa um but the only other film that i can think of that deals with bdsm and leather culture and the way that this movie is borrowing the language of that community on screen to you know, communicate the themes and ideas of the Cenobites um, is William Freakin's cruising. Yeah. Um, I was, I was, I thought you were going to say knife plus heart, but, but yes, you're right. Yeah. That like, that's the only movie that predates Hellraiser that I can think of that yeah. deals with that because like it, Friedkin treated it like a documentary on like, here's these weird clubs that these dudes are dressing up like cops and fisting each other. And you're like, yeah. uh, sure sure okay 
Um, and obviously that was like heavily protested and it didn't yeah. do very big at the box office. And it has since been like rediscovered and reclaimed. But to your point, there is a quality, there is a quality to cruising that feels like the movie is saying like, isn't this shocking? Like, oh my God. And it doesn't feel like that with Hellraiser because it feels like an insider (laughs) is making the movie, you know? Hellraiser has this feeling of like guiding you by the hand through this. All of the Cenobites are very calm and cool and collected and yeah. they can be like shocking and jarring the first time you see Chattera or something like that. But the you want to see more of them. You only yeah. get them on screen a little bit. You want you want to see your it like scratches an itch in the back of your head because it's made by someone who understands that desire. Yeah, the film desires them and wants to be around them and wants to like it finds comfort in them the way that you kind of feel that Barker does. Um, and it's a fucking, like, it's literally a gateway kink movie. <laughs> yeah. I don't know anyone in kink who doesn't l- not just love Hellraiser. Yeah, I can't imagine. Um, critical response to this was uh, mixed to positive. Um, notably, our boy, and I say that ironically, Roger Ebert did not like this movie. He said it. But he, he, like, the Family Values film critic didn't love Hellraiser? <laughs> He's so hard on horror, but then every once in a while there's like one that he just loves out of the blue, and it's so strange. But he saw, he called this unimaginative, which I just can't, I can't imagine. Like, what? In the context of 80s horror films, I can't imagine seeing this and thinking that it's unimaginative. It's just so different than anything else on the landscape. He's famously very wrong. I went through a, a like YouTube video recently that compiled all of Siskel and Ebert's reviews on Lynch films. Oh, and really? Every single one is Gene Siskel being like, I like what this guy's doing. He's got some potential. He's doing something interesting. I want to see more of these. And Gene Siskel just being like, he's a mean, awful human being who thinks it's okay to laugh at this stuff. And he's a coward trying to show you scary things and then take it away by making you laugh two seconds later. He's an edgelord and he's awful. And I'm like, and then uh, by the time the Mulholland Drive comes out, all of a sudden Roger Ebert is like, I love David Lynch. David Lynch is my best friend. David Lynch is a genius. Well, there's also, this is worth watching for horror fans on YouTube. They did a special Roger and Ebert in the early 80s about slasher films. Yeah. And why they were like morally opposed to them. Yeah, they were really worried about it. You know, about the violence against women and the misogyny of it and like Mm -hmm. these being so popular teenagers. And they're kind of like wringing their hands about the whole genre, which I can understand in the context of the time, but I also just don't agree and wouldn't have agreed then so it's really interesting historically i guess but yeah not a fan of this or roger ebert it's crazy that he wrote beyond the valley of the dolls which is such a great movie and so sexy and so campy it does just doesn't feel like him at all it doesn't it but it feels like him trying to write a russ meyer movie true and in that i did see that uh famously when he was working on that with russ meyer Roger Ebert was very like stuffy and kind of like conservative around Russ Meyer and had like a view of Russ Meyer that was false, but was very like what the public had that Russ Meyer was some like macho 
pornographer who was like terrible to everyone all the time. And yeah. so he and his like assistant and his production people would make fun of Ebert all the time. And whenever Roger would be coming to the office, um, he like had his secretary take her top off and just sit <laughs> at the desk like topless. <laughs> that's so funny that's so funny and he would always be very flustered and like i i like dunking on him i think it's funny it is fun anything else it's fine yeah he's wrong a lot of the time um anything else to say about hellraiser before we move on i think it's wonderful and i think that the sequels that it has spawned are bizarre to say the least some hellbound is incredible and surpasses the first one, I think, in a lot of ways. Hell on Earth is, like, what I thought Hellraiser was going to be when I was 14 and had only seen um, Friday the 13th movies. Mm -hmm. And it literally has a DJ being turned into a Cenobite who has CDs sticking out of his head. Yeah. Which is one of the (laughs) stupidest things I've seen in any movie. But then you get, like, Pinhead in space. And then you get, like... The fourth one, which is like a like time jumping adventure with Adam Scott from Parks and Rec. And Mm -hmm. like, they're very, very weird. I will say I did like David Bruckner's Hellraiser um, from 2021, 2022 quite a bit. I thought Jamie Clinton was incredible as Pinhead. I would love to watch a TV series. I would love to watch like an FX there, there was one in development of uh, a Hellraiser show in development, but I remember it was a few years ago now because I was still on Sabrina when the deadline article came out. So who knows mm. if it's still happening? And I remember reading who the showrunners were and being disappointed, but I can't remember who they were because it was like two straight guys, frankly. And I was like, mm, I don't know. I would love to see like Noah Hawley, who does um, Legion and, uh, and Fargo. Fargo take on that for fx or something like that but keep jamie clayton in it and like keep david bruckner directing or something like that like keep ryan murphy far 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 away keep ryan murphy's (laughs) sticky little fingers (laughs) away from a hellraiser he doesn't understand it don't let him pay play the pink card it won't get him anywhere yeah so let's play have they seen it the game where we speculate wildly whether notable figures have seen this movie i have somebody in mind this is don't come for me not you drew because i know that you don't care about this person but listen <laughs> this is one of my least favorite people and recently she was talking about how one of her recent albums was like her goth punk album oh lord so i want to know do you think taylor swift has seen hellraiser fuck no no fuck no she also understands nothing about goth culture of course not like move a step aside Susie sue here comes taylor swift i i just could not design a more boring person than taylor swift she's a (laughs) she's a pumpkin spice latte turned human she's literally like she's an infinity scarf as a woman (laughs) like like the coca-cola corporation was like we need to make a human soon right yeah we as the coca-cola corporation can make a human being right let's give it a shot i can't stand her her fans are demented she's a bully and i just don't i'm not i just i i reject the whole thing the whole enterprise the single greatest human polluter on the earth I, Did you know really? that? No. She is. 
that it came out like last year or something like that because like the whole narrative of like you you one person sitting there in columbus ohio sipping your cola through a straw are ruining the environment and it's like no actually it's corporations yes. and governments that are ruining the environment yeah. you as a single person are going to stress yourself out to high heavens to make sure that, that box is crumpled down enough into the recycling so that and that your tin cans are washed out enough so they can be recycled so that you can like sleep at night meanwhile it's actual the fucking corporations that are wrecking things however there is one person with that much weight on their shoulders, and it's Taylor Swift. They like crunched the numbers last year, and she pollutes more than some countries. Just because of like her huge concerts or No, it was a year that she wasn't even touring. Oh, she's just walking around throwing litter on the street or what? <laughs> like she was like taking private jets to Chipotle. Oh, I gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. She sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like <laughs> hater, that's hater crazy it, like, it reminds me there's a bit on Kimmy Schmidt where um, Zanthippy Voorhees um, gets grounded for uh, hiring a charter helicopter to dry her jeans on the lawn <laughs> <laughs> and it's like yeah that's Taylor Swift yeah so Taylor Swift definitely has not seen Hellraiser definitely no speaking of uh, great goth subculture uh, especially of the 80s and speaking of my stepfather who showed me um, Hellraiser, they're uh, one of his favorite bands and that he took my mother to go see uh, in concert a few times uh, is Bauhaus, who, uh, if you listen to our podcast, we clearly have no idea about Bauhaus at all, either as an art movement or as a band. We don't know shit about that. We don't know <laughs> uh, do you think Peter Murphy has seen um, Hellraiser? I think so. So you? I feel like I feel. I don't know if he would have seen it like in the theater in 1987, but I feel like he would have seen it at some point. Yeah, I'm sure he had a beta max of it circa 1989 or something like that. Yeah, but I feel like yeah, I feel like if you know Peter Murphy was on a fucking red carpet and Letterboxd asked him his top four favorite movies, it probably wouldn't pop up there. But it might like yeah. I he's definitely seen it and I feel like he probably likes it quite a bit. Me too. Do you think that Pe- this is off topic? Do you think that Peter Murphy likes Christmas? Because <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I'm looking at a Christmas tree in my reflection. I think he does. And I had to explain to my coworkers who were like, they were surprised that I love Christmas. And they're like, goth people shouldn't like Christmas. It's like, no, 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 you don't understand. Gothic people love Christmas. Goth people love Christmas because it's pagan. Yeah, and it's sad actually in the northern hemisphere at least. It's like a it's actually quite melancholy and dark. Mm-hmm. It's nighttime and cold and Well, in England too, like ghost stories are very synonymous with yeah. Christmas and yeah. like the BBC used to run Christmas ghost like shorts all the fucking time. They're so good. Those if I you mean, can hunt Dickens. those down they're good. Yeah. Yeah, the BFI I believe has released a number of them on disc recently. You should definitely track those down. Yeah no goths love christmas every goth i know like they go super hard for halloween and then as soon as their halloween decorations come down it's fucking reindeers and shit like yeah um who else do i want to say let me think of somebody else who's contemporary um this person just popped into my head out of the clear blue sky the rapper problematic favorite azalea banks do you think that azalea oh, banks has lord seen 
She's I'm pretty homophobic. Say, yeah, she sucks in a number of ways. I'm yeah. gonna say yes. I'm gonna say I believe she has seen it. She probably likes it quite a bit. Uh, I just don't want to hear Azalea Banks talk, discuss Hellraiser. No, but bodies, if my bodies, YouTube bodies. Algorithm is listening to me. Don't, don't recommend me, me that. But you can show me the music video for two one two because bodies, bodies, bodies really reminded me what a banger mm. that was. But it's only it one is. good song. It's not enough. Um. Yeah. So we think Azalea is a yes. I would agree with that. Yeah. Let me think of someone else contemporary. I mean, do you think Charlie XCX has seen Hellraiser? For sure. Yeah. Yeah, I do think so. I love Charlie XCX. She's like more on the alt side of like the pop girlies. And for that reason, I think I think she's a yes. Yeah. It's it's very like it's a lot easier to play this game with this than say like some Elo de la Glacia movies. Right. <laughs> because like Hellraiser is like famous. You can find like knockoffs of it at Spirit Halloween and it like was on Netflix for years. Like most yeah, people have. Totally. If you ask me, has Lauren Bobert seen Hellraiser? I'd be like, probably. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Oh, so the one that I was gonna ask because again, like in the same way that you brought up Taylor Swift, like I'm not intending to be controversial. I know this person's in the news a lot right now. I'm not trying to pick sides, even though there is one side that is clearly correct and uh, one side that is committing a genocide. Do you think Netanyahu has seen Hellraiser? Drusilla, this is dangerous territory. I don't give Uh, a fuck. I know know that you don't. Um, BB... Netanyahu, that's his nickname. Did you know that? I almost named Edie no, BB, and my that. friend was like, "My friend was like, don't name her BB because that's Benjamin Netanyahu's nickname." And I was like, "Oh God, okay, stay away." Um, no, I don't think he has seen Hellraiser. I think he's like no. too old, and you know, and I just too conservative. He seems moralizing in the way that, like, if like he was like walking down the street and past a like movie theater that was doing like a rep screening of hellraiser and just seeing the title i feel like he would like turn his nose at it or something he'd be like what a shame what is the world coming to and then go on committing genocide so yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know like yeah i yeah. think that's right <laughs> i think that's right you're absolutely correct and if you disagree <laughs> with us you can go jump into a river yeah i don't know what to tell you um Listen, that's it for this episode of Bloodhouse. If you loved it, please rate it five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. Please don't bring up, please don't give us one star for Israel Palestine. <laughs> or do, I don't care. Um, you like, can email us. You can also go donate to uh, uh, Gaza Relief Funds. You can also go and uh, hit up your um, local representatives to demand a ceasefire. Yes. Like, um, you can email us your hate mail at bloodhousepod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.